Welcome on into the show. My name is Danny Gallagher, and I'm joined by the Snare Campaign Provocateur. And he may or may not have been booked on a, a festival in Vegas because apparently nobody knows. It's Benny Horowitz. What's up, dude? Oh, what's up, man? I, so, all right. Just so people know what we're talking about, we're talking about this weird festival in Vegas where, like, every emo band in the history of the world is playing. Well, I guess, like, post-2000s emo, right? Yeah. And apparently, what, some of these bands had no idea they were booked on this festival? Found out when the uh, listing came out? I don't know. I think that's bullshit. I think... I think it's bullshit, too. Like, because it's like... Like, we've talked about on this a million times. Like, contracts have to be signed. Like, there's no way... Like, you think, like, a band like All American Rejects doesn't fucking know where they're playing? Get out of here. No, I think even before you're allowed to put All American Rejects on the flyer, you are paying half of their deposit for the show. Yeah. So um, not only does it seem unfeasible, it's probably unlikely that that actually happened. If it did, you know, this festival could be, you know, sued out of their fucking pants before the thing even happens. So that doesn't sound real to me. The thing that I'm curious about, as always with this stuff, I almost tweeted this yesterday, too. I almost tweeted that. My Chemical Romance is like Forrest Gump. Just stop being so cool already and admit it's good and you like it. <laughs> you know, like they're one of those bands that I think just because of the, you know, the nature of what you're supposed to say and what you're supposed to like. And oh, I'm a hardcore kid. I can't like this. I'm a punk rock kid. I can't like this. Just go back to the first couple of My Chem records. There's some undeniably good rock and roll records you know like that are unique and cool and people got to get over that shit like i'm sorry this emo revolution that you were so angry about in the early 2000s it's still here <laughs> a lot of people like it and it's not going away i got no issue with this festival enjoy las vegas here's my question denny mm -hmm. for you is i see a festival like this and there's such a a lack of diversity in the artists, right? Like, like this is such a niche thing. It's like people who like this go to this. All the bands are the same. They're all collecting in the same places. And I feel like this has been happening for a while now. You know, you had it uh, first on Warp Tour and then these big package tours where they're taking four or five of these same 90s artists and emo artists and putting them on a cruise. And more and more as we get into this, I'm wondering, like, is this some version of, like, jazz? You know what I mean? Like, like where the time of the mainstream for this is over, and as age goes on, it's not going to lose its audience because its audience is still alive, but it's getting nichier and nichier and nichier as we go where there's only this one type of person very specifically who likes it. You think that's a fair observation? Yeah, and I'm and I'm uh, and I'm excited for the version of, of this where there's like, all right, we got to take fifteen. Here's some somebody on the keys to take us over. Uh, no, yeah. like I'm, I'm super excited for uh, the the emo punk pop version of that. But no, oh, man, this is so crazy. Honestly, a big part of me wanted this whole like because there was a big to do on, online about this festival. Like I kind of wanted it to be like end up being like Firefest. I don't want that because I do, in fairness, know like about 15 bands personally who are on this show. And I, I don't wish for them to fail. Oh. I hope everyone 
goes to Las Vegas, has a nice weekend. Don't lose your shirt. <laughs> Remember when the table gets cold, stand up and, uh, you know, have a little fun out there. Let's let's not be so judgy about about a bunch of emo kids. Let me just tell you something. It's going to be a lot of funny jeans, a lot of funny jeans and a lot of hair product. Oh, I'm 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 seeing that right out my door every single day. It's uh the originator. Anyway, Mr. Los Angeles. Uh, that's right. Los, I'm surprised you still look the way you do. I thought you'd been nipped and tucked by now. Little Botox in the lips. I thought I, you were gonna be all done up. I almost came here with frosted tips today, but it's yeah. fine. It didn't happen. I would have hung up. <laughs> but what's Get new with you, dude? Zoom. Get me off. What have you been listening to this week? Encanto as usual. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm still very much in like a very deep 70s soul thing right now. Like I can't get away from uh, some early Isaac Hayes records. Uh I discovered that Black Caesar record by James Brown and the JBs. Sweet Exorcist by Curtis Mayfield. I'm on a real sexy early 70s R&B kind of kick. Well, if I would have to describe one thing we do as sexy... Right. Mm -hmm. It may be sports talk, but, you know, sometimes we get we lose the command on our fastball a little bit. (laughs) If I would describe something, you know, maybe has to do with the 70s a little bit, I would uh, probably describe uh, what's that thing we do. Oh, yeah. This day music history. Invented in 1977. Um, This is a tough one today. We had a lot of options. I mean, uh, the very important record, uh, Transgender Dysphoria Blues by Against Me, came out in 14. Sometimes I feel like this day in music history is, it's got to be like a decade older. I can't count it. You know, um, in 1997, uh, Pat Boone released No More Mr. Nice Guy. If people haven't heard of that, it's Pat Boone covering like Crazy Train, Stairway to Heaven, you know, all these like classic metal songs in the style of Pat Boone. It is worth a listen, okay? And this is a segue into my This Day in Music History because he covers Enter Sandman by Metallica. In 2004, Metallica released Some Kind of Monster. Have you ever seen this, Denny? No. So Some Kind of Monster was the uh, documentary film that Metallica put out um, about recording the record St. Anger in a couple years before that. And famously, in the documentary, they have these very expensive and public and sort of embarrassing sessions with a, uh, a shrink, or what I think they call it, like a performance-enhancing coach, <laughs> you know, who essentially is sitting there, you know, brokering peace between Lars and James. And through the course of it, you know, James goes to rehab and, the, the reason I bring this up is this. Metallica took a lot of shit for this. I mean, they were literally like universally mocked for not only the documentary, but also the album, particularly the snare drum sound, which takes the most shit from that album of anything. And to me, just like the Napster and downloading thing, it's a bit of a cue that Metallica was ahead of their time. And one thing... I always thought about this documentary was like, this didn't come out to the side of Metallica. You know, this wasn't some outside force. Metallica made this with, you know, the intention of putting out, saw it, approved it, and still put it out there to the world, almost like bearing yourself in this like extremely embarrassing way, this extremely raw way 
uh, dealing with mental health, saying ridiculous things to each other. Where you, you know, they must have watched it and know they sounded like assholes at times, you know, and they still put it out. And all these years have passed, and now we're at this different level where, like, if a band was to bring this in and recognize mental health and recognize their struggles and be transparent about it like this, they might get applauded. Um, so where Metallica was like universally mocked in 2004 for this, I feel like they were ahead of their time. And this is a very Van Hagar take uh, where I am alone on an island on this <laughs> one, trust me, because people think this documentary and record are just ridiculous to the, to the core. And I am a Metallica sycophant, I'll admit it. But I do think they deserve a little credit for this. All right, Benny, on this day, also in 1997, I'm going to talk about the Colonel a little bit. Tom Parker, Elvis's manager, passed away from a stroke in Las Vegas at the age of 87. Um, interesting. Um, he was he was a Dutch immigrant who changed his name as soon as he arrived to the U.S., though he uh, never applied for a green card and feared for deportation most of his life. Why do I bring this up? Because there's an upcoming Elvis biopic, and guess who's playing the colonel? We got Seth Rogen? No, you brought up uh, Forrest Gump before. Tom Hanks playing the colonel. Oh, yeah, okay. Okay, so. that's interesting. Wow, I wonder. So Hanks, Hanks usually doesn't like to take a role where he's disliked. I the think Colonel it was sometimes yeah. disliked. I wonder how he's going to play that. Well, it's like I, I don't know if, if you heard the conversation that he had on the Simmons podcast a couple months ago. But he's like interested in characters now that have had to make some sort of compromise, and the Colonel seems like mm -hmm. a like if, if you're going for that, he seems like a pretty good uh, character to play. What do you think is the finest Tom Hanks role of all time? Oh, man. Like, A, a League of Their Own is up there. Terminal's mm -hmm. hard. Um, Castaway, of course. Are we going to go Bosom Buddies? No, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but how about you? Yeah, you know, well, I guess, like, sheerly from performance, I'll throw it to Castaway. Mm. You know, because just... There's so few people I can imagine doing that role and doing it like that and keeping the kind of vibe it had. Um, so, yeah, I guess I'll go cast away for finest singular performance. But you didn't mention Philadelphia, and that's a goddamn oh, heartbreaker. That's it. And, that's the answer. And, yeah, that's uh, if you're talking about just nailing a character and bringing you along a human experience, Philadelphia is. Uh, pretty important film. yeah as an, an actor and then i mean I, i'd be remiss in this tom hanks conversation not to bring up that thing you do i, I think that was his directorial sure. debut as well so kind of bringing that whole thing so in many ways the colonel is going to be like the opposite of that character in th right. that thing That's you do right. so it's gonna be fun but if i'm gonna be honest just to be clear yeah if i'm scrolling through tv and uh big is on oh it's over the burbs are on Joe versus the volcanoes on. I'm watching all of those. Money Pit. Philadelphia Castaway. Yeah. All the serious ones. <laughs> I'll take Tom Hanks' 80s comedy any day of the week. Splash. <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> all right. Well, you know, there's no good transition for this. We have become, over the time of doing this podcast, if a, if a biopic is reported about a musical figure, we're going to talk about it. That's that's one of our many wheelhouses. So we have 
another one, and this one involves an unlikely subject. Benny, we're getting a Weird Al biopic, and guess who they have playing Weird Al in this whole thing? Wait, let me take a guess. Uh, Harry Potter? That's right. Daniel Radcliffe is is, is going to have the role. Uh, Deadline Hollywood kind of went into more detail about this. It's being produced by Funny or Die, and the feature is set to begin filming in February, and the movie will focus on the six, uh, the 62-year-old's explosive rise to fame from a child prodigy to a Grammy star, and will cover the dramatic celebrity relationships and overall lifestyle post-fame. Benny, that's a lot. I don't, like, I, I'm not thinking this is going to be a movie that you're going to see in the movie theater, but what do you make of this? Like, are you, is, how do you feel about this? I feel really, well, first off, like, 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 just take Daniel Radcliffe out of it for a second. Um, this is a story that needs to be told and that I really want to see. So, so first off, I think that's half the battle, right? When you're doing a, a biopic is the subject. And if you don't have anything interesting to tell, then you're, you know, not going to have much. And he had a really, really cool uh, upbringing to somebody like me, like the way he was trained in music and, um, you know, Weird Al was on a very famous, like, uh, you know, West Coast variety radio show hosted by Dr. Demento, which, you know, if it wasn't for Weird Al, I would have never heard of that, but apparently it was, you know, one of the breakthrough, like radio comedy things, one of the breakthrough parody things that even allowed him to create the Weird Al character and stuff. So, and he's like a proper classically trained musician on top of it. So, you know, I'm really curious to see the jump of that person's story. And Daniel Radcliffe, you know, I don't know him for much. So I don't have like a huge opinion about his acting. I'm not going to take like the prisoner of Azkaban and be like, <laughs> this guy can't do it because he was a child. And I don't really know what he's like capable of in this type of style. The one thing I do know is he's kind of quirky. Um, you see him in interviews and he's sort of like a quirky dude, really into music. I think I saw him once spit that entire Black Alicia song on, <laughs> on uh, you know, on, on TV once. So, you know, it's, I'm not going to go ahead and say if he's going to do a good or job, good job or bad job. I have no idea. I've actually learned my lesson from your Pete Davidson YouTube to not oh. <laughs> slam anyone because I just feel too bad about it. Um, but I think it's going to be good, and I'm actually, I'm actually all for it. I think it's going to be cool. And uh, you know what? What um, Yankovic said, he said, my last movie UHF came out in 89 and I made a solemn vow to my fans that I'd release a major motion picture every 33 years like clockwork. Like clockwork. You know, there we go. Like this is this is why this, this story needs to be told about this guy. He's just the funniest dude ever and such a cool career. And I want to see it. So, yeah, I'm, I'm here for this one. Yeah, it's funny. So Radcliffe currently is on or was on a a sitcom on TBS with like like a bunch of former like SNL people and and, and uh, stuff like yeah. that. So he's dabbled in, in in the comedy before but like I don't know like is I think this is going to be funny but I really have no idea what to expect from this like at all. I think that it could go in a variety of ways. I mean, I think the only thing you can 
really assume, right, is that Daniel Radcliffe is a young guy. So, yeah. you know, the, the, the assumption is that we're dealing with the early part of Weird Al's career, yeah. right? Yeah. So, and that's the part I'm interested in. Hmm. So, yeah, we'll see. We'll see, right? Awesome. Yeah, yeah. It's going to be fun. I'll watch it. Yeah. Let's just say yeah. I, I wasn't going to watch Pete Davidson play Joey Ramone. <laughs> I'll watch this. Oh, I did it again. <laughs> Punk rock drummer reacts to Daniel Oh, Rapp. I can't believe you did that. Punk right. rock drummer <laughs> throws this dude under the bus. News at 11. Thanks, Danny. I hope it got you some clicks. <laughs> A little bit. A little bit. All right. All right, let's, uh, you know, speaking of funny people getting honored, let's get a little closer to home, Benny. New Jersey's own John Stewart has been named the 23rd recipient of the Mark Twain Prize for American Humor, joining the ranks of comedy icons like Richard Pryor, Whoopi Goldberg, Steve Martin, Eddie Murphy, and Dave Chappelle. The former Daily Show host will receive the award at the Kennedy Center in D.C. on April 24th. Uh, the ceremony will be the first held since 2019, so the first returned to the Kennedy Center since COVID. Uh, Benny Stewart has had a long line of, of, of hits, including his most recent show on HBO. Uh, what do you make of this? Is it time to finally give Jon Stewart his flowers? Listen, this is the last person I'll ever take down a peg, okay? Yeah. I mean, it's clearly the only Mark Twain recipient winner who's been a bartender at City Gardens in Trent. <laughs> Okay, so just for that simple fact, I mean, I literally live, you know, in earshot of where Jon Stewart grew up and I have nothing but respect for him. Uh, and I'm a huge fan of the new I don't watch the show, but I'm a huge fan of the new podcast. I've listened to every episode. So I'm an actual Jon Stewart fan. I want to make that clear from the start. But the one thing that I'm a little confused about, especially you go through this list like. Chappelle, Will Farrell, Steve Martin, Whoopi Goldberg, like the types of people that they've uh, honored at this thing. And Jon Stewart's had a very different trajectory, like almost to the point I don't really view Jon Stewart as a comedian, you know? And like, because the career I know him for feels kind of serious, kind of political, kind of necessary, you know, like, like, you could tell me, like, hey, we're going to remove Whoopi Goldberg's career from the arc of... And I'd be like, well, that's a shame, because I really like a lot of these films. You know, I, I guess I don't watch The View. Maybe she's <laughs> made a bigger impact than I think. But, you know, I would be like, okay, you can take Jumpin' Jack Flash out of the narrative of, you know, the world, and the world would still operate in the same way. The Daily Show played this, like, strangely pivotal part in our entire like country's history which is you know bizarre to think now but the presentation of the news um the presentation of liberal news and conservative news and the way he does it and the way he talked about it it completely changed the game that show completely changed the game so as much as i do want john stewart to be honored i just don't see him as a comedian do yeah you? i mean okay so my relationship with Stuart is a, a little bit different. Watch The Daily Show was, was here for that, but I really developed this entire new appreciation uh, for him. You know, he was involved in the in uh, the Larry Sanders show, 
like I, I think it's great. And when we've talked about careers on, on the show to have multiple acts, you know, we kind of talked about that with Betty White being known for three, three different things. Uh, yeah. John Stewart kind of has that like early punk renegade. Then there's daily show and then there's activists. So I think all three of those things is why if you're going to bring it back in person and celebrate all of these people in person, why not start with the guy that's made the biggest impact in the world? It's true. Do you think any of it is, you know, this just popped in my head, but it's like, is any of it like the Hollywood elite types, like just kind of uh, leaning into the thing that people think? It's like, you know what? They already think we're fucking liberal Hollywood elite types. Like, we're going to honor Jon Stewart this year. Fuck you. You know, <laughs> kind of like, like leaning into the fact of, I don't know. I could see that being a little thing, too, because... I, I don't know. I have to just assume I don't listen to a lot of conservatives talk, but I have to assume they don't like Jon Stewart very much. Or or do you want the super cynical take here? Please. Or is it, hey, who's the guy that we can give this to that people will pay to come to the event and we can kind of get this thing going again? Mm. Biggest draw. Yeah. Sure. Especially in DC. I mean, remember when him him and Colbert did that uh March to restore sanity and they like filled the mall. So like DC is probably one of his better markets. So if you're gonna try to restart the Kennedy uh the the Twain Prize thing and you want people to come pay for it, John Stewart's a pretty good guy. It's true. I just wanna see I don't think anybody's done a better acceptance speech than Will Farrell. That's no. what I want to see top. That shit is hilarious. Love that. Let's try to get a little bit more serious now. We have a we have an interesting story today. We haven't done a tech story in a, a long time, but we're in the mergers and acquisitions business over here. <laughs> um, Microsoft has agreed to buy Activision Blizzard Incorporated, the video game uh, producers, in an all cash deal valued at about seventy five billion. That's that's a lot of money. A couple dollars. Yeah, a couple dollars. Pretty good. Um, if the deal is completed, Microsoft's already sizable video game operation would add a staple of some of the biggest games, most popular and some of the most profitable games. Um, and it would make Microsoft the third largest producer in this space. Now, why are we talking about this in general? Um, so there's been a thing that I think this was started by Zuckerberg and everybody else is trying to grab hold of it grab hold of this the metaverse which is just like mm. what the fuck are we doing it's like it's like somebody saw spider-man and, and was like oh we can have like different universes and now they're trying to make reality like that so essentially these video game companies since they have almost 25 to 30 years of building universes in these games have been tasked with building the infrastructure for the metaverse and microsoft with this deal kind of wants a seat at the table so that is that. That's the Sparknotes version. That's the version that you cram ten minutes before your test. Uh, Benny, what do you make of uh, Microsoft? Is is this play by Microsoft a power grab? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's a little bit like we talk in music sometimes with how things are shifting towards publishing and ownership of, you know, the rights. I think, you know, half of what's happening here is like. You're buying names, right? You're buying Call of Duty. You're buying World of Warcraft. You're buying Guitar Hero, Tony Hawk, Candy Crush. And the thing with those is, like, as you're saying, these aren't just games anymore. Like, I don't know 
what the future of things like this are. You know, they're they're films, they're interactive series, they're like the any number of things, like you said, like control of the metaverse in some way. So I think that's a big part of it is really just the owning of the titles themselves. But the thing you have to um, explain to me, okay, that I didn't really understand because I'm not a big gamer, like what's been going on with all these games and apparently how difficult they are to find or stream or that Microsoft is going to be able to give them a platform they didn't have. Yeah, so... Uh, full disclosure, I don't game as much as I, I, I used to, mainly because it, it's getting frustrating. So remember you used to go into your Best Buy or your GameStop, you buy the game, plug it in, good to go. Well, now you like download this shit. Now there's like in-game purchases. And it's if, if, if you play 2K now, it is nothing like, like you can have your own like avatar and, and you're in this world. So I see that like space that they're trying to occupy but I think it's super dangerous and irresponsible to say, hey, we have this cool thing that exists just in a video game and taking it to the streets and like companies like Walmart trying to gear up to be profitable in the metaverse. It's like, what are we doing here? Like, for real, what are we doing? Well, I mean, I think that's what we're doing. Like, you know, like we're watching the entire shift of this and like, you know, uh, maybe some of these science fiction movies are true where people our age are going to be staring at a bunch of kids wearing goggles, living their lives in the metaverse. We're living our lives here. And functionally, they're, you know, probably equally important lives because who the fuck knows? So <laughs> I think this stuff is definitely a uh, tip of the iceberg precipice kind of thing about, you know, who's who's gaining power and stuff. But also... I think we're going to be seeing a lot of this coming up soon, which was, uh, you know, I think we're in that like uh, pre-cable consolidation part of tech as well, where like a lot of what we're seeing is just the biggest gobble up the smallest. And eventually we're going to all have the same fucking three options to choose from because the big ones crumbled up the other ones. Like how eventually... If you wanted to watch the Yankees and the Nets, you had to buy cable and you had no other choice and no other avenue. And people have been complaining for ages about the consolidation of their streaming and, oh, I can't find something here. I can't find something there. And, and I think this is all just part of that, part and parcel. Yeah, it's really sad. You know, I feel like there's it should still be important to take a walk outside to like live life. But it's like, you know, it's also interesting. And, and I wonder if this culturally is why we're having this metaverse conversation, right? Is you have so many people that cannot afford to live in reality, whether that be mm -hmm. because of like student debt or whatever, like sure. in racial inequality, stuff like that. If they're like, Hey, let's just try to build this utopia online where everybody gets a, a, a fair shake with that but that to me seems orwellian and like like next thing you know we're gonna be on like soma and like red pill blue pill shit you know the one thing i'll always bring up in this i remember seeing i read a book a long long time ago called uh everything that's uh, bad is good for you <laughs> um but one of the points that uh that they made in that 
book is how, you know, if you took someone our age and said, what's one of the most useful tasks you can do, right? They would say, read a book. You know, reading a book, it's good for your brain. It does this. It's good. It's, this is a good thing. But when you actually consider what you're doing, you're sitting down by yourself, not interacting with anyone else, creating a story inside of your own head and living out this narrative in some kind of way. Like, take the tech part out of it. What does like a 20-minute walk through a virtual park in your goggles, what's different from that than like reading a book? Or these, these weird escapisms that people used to have. And like you said, if you're on the top of a 26-story building in the Bronx and there's not a fucking park in sight, and you can throw on some goggles and take a beautiful walk through one in like another country, I don't know. Fuck it. Sounds kind of nice. I love it. You know what? You didn't fully turn me on it, but I see your point. Like, 100%. Like, like it could be nice. It could be nice, but I, I don't know. Maybe, like you've said, I've just built up these, by reading science fiction books, I've just built, built up this narrative in my head of, this is the end. So, Well, it also, and then, you know, there's my very naive utopian idea that overarching globalism to the point where, you know, a kid from... Alabama and a kid from uh, Thailand can exist together inside of a world and like fall in love or really know each other, really understand each other on like a deep level that would never be possible if it wasn't for that. And if enough of those connections are bridged, like do we have world wars anymore? You mm. know, like, like there is like some, a fundamental utopian concept to it that if like you use these things correctly, it could really help. Which brings me to my other favorite Tom Hanks role. You've got mail. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so much better than Sleepless in Seattle. It's so much just not even close. Not even close. All right, Benny, we brought up the rom-coms. We've dimmed the lights. You can hear the music. It's time to keep sports talk sexy. Shall we? Please. Shall we try to keep it sexy? Each and every week, I bring up things in the sports world, and I ask Benny to essentially be optimistic, keep it sexy, and this week, oh, Benny, we get to go to my new hometown team. How about that? No, just kidding. I'm not going to claim Los Angeles ever <laughs> oh, as my home. I can't, I, can't, I can't do it. You a Clippers guy? You a Clippers <laughs> oh, guy now? Big PG guy. Oh, boy. Kawhi at the Rams game the other that guy. That guy is a gift that keeps on giving. But, Benny, let's, let's talk about these Lakers. They're just below 500. Frank Vogel... Seat is undeservingly hot. Uh, on Wednesday night's game, he sat Russ uh, for the final four minutes because he was like, hey, we, I, I got to put in the guys in there. They give us the best chance to win. Russ leaves the arena in, in a huff. Um, and they still lost. Yeah, and, and they still lost. Then you got LeBron. LeBron, see, LeBron's back on his thing. LeBron is back on the, um, oh, like, we played well. They just exploited our, our game plan. Like, I'm sorry that you didn't get to name this guy LeBron, but, like, be, be mature about it. You're 38. You have kids. You have kids. What the fuck are you doing? Like, you do not get to do this. You are not a prima donna anymore, okay? Like, you have a whole studio. You have employees. Oh, I hate this. I hate this. Anyway. Denial is a river in Egypt, you know? <laughs> anyway, let's calm. Let's keep it sexy. Keep it sexy. We don't want my face being red. Let's keep it sexy. Should Frank Vogel be on the hot seat? No. No, he shouldn't. I mean, 
This is like the hilarious, uh, uh, you know, recency bias we always go through. But, you know, Frank Vogel was the defensive genius who knew how to take care of LeBron and knew how to do that, what, like a year and a half ago? Mm-hmm. Um, and then LeBron, as usual, you know, steps in, decides to be GM again, is clearly the one who really advocated for this Russell Westbrook thing. I mean, listen, I do think Russell Westbrook is... Uh, being unfairly vilified to a point um, where he wasn't supposed to rack up the load he's racking up. He wasn't supposed to have as much pressure as he did. And he does. Uh, But the thing you cannot give him credit for is that he is, you know, such a highly unadaptable uh, player that, you know, the one, the one thing that's funny about this is like the, uh, the chorus of sports journalists saying, I told you so. And the one, this is the one time they're actually all right. I didn't hear a lot of people being very positive about this Lakers experiment in the off season. And most of the numbers people and the real like students of the game were, were crushing it from the get being like, this cannot work. And, you know, LeBron and his gumption, you know, had a nice meeting with, with Russ, thought he was coming home, thought he could get him to play a different way. And you know what? Russ doesn't play a different way. Like, like what you see is what you get. I saw someone bring up the other day something with Allen Iverson, um, who was the same way, you know? Like, like, that guy didn't go to some second stage of his career by adapting into a role player or adapting into a six-man once he couldn't do the thing that Allen Iverson did, he was gone. Um, and I think we're getting to that same point with Russ. It's just like he's not going to change his game, and this is just where it's at. And it, is that Frank Vogel's fault? No, 1,000% not. What the fuck are you supposed <laughs> to do with that? Um, the one thing, too, that I'm a little nervous about you know, is like, Anthony Davis has kind of like a mixed bag and a mixed track record as far as how he responds to, to a lot of pressure. Um, and more often than not, he responds pretty poorly to it. We've seen uh, one or two seasons where he responded really well. We've seen uh, one playoff series in particular where he responded really well to the pressure. But I don't like Anthony Davis getting healthy and coming into a team that's a few games under 500 who really needs to rack up wins with all these eyes on him and all this pressure and the LA thing seems like a bad recipe to me for a guy like that and and the type of personality we're seeing him having. So, uh, yeah, a long story short, no, I don't think Frank Vogel should get fired. Is he going to get fired? Probably. Because, you know, <laughs> like this is LeBron's deal. They hit a wall. Uh, he is not going to sit there in a press conference, go and throw Russ under the bus. He's not going to say, hey, I thought this was going to work. I thought Russ would change. He's not. That's not happening. So I think the coach is usually the first one to get his his, uh, his throat slit. It's probably going to happen again. And I don't know if LeBron doesn't know that the blueprint for him to win a championship is to put great shooters around him and just let him do the thing. But he keeps wanting to assemble like these sexy teams that sell the jerseys. It's like, you're not getting a cut of that merch, LeBron. Get some shooters around you. Like, Yeah. 
I mean, it, listen, it's one of those obvious things this year. Like, would the Lakers be better right now with Kyle Kuzma, KCP, and Montrez Harrell instead of Russ? Yeah. Yeah. Like, like pretty fucking obviously, yeah. But the other thing that always has to be taken into account is, like, LeBron is not everyone. And, like, Kyle Kuzma is not playing like Washington Wizards Kyle Kuzma if he's still on the Lakers. Yeah. Because he's sitting in the corner looking for open threes. Uh, he's, he's looking for putbacks, and he's playing a completely different way. He's not touching the ball in offense. And and it's just a different scenario. So it's just the way the uh, the cookie crumbled here. And, and, you know, there's really no moves for Russ. Like, that's one of the things. Between the contract, I mean, literally the only move that's out there is some sort of bizarre play for John Wall. <laughs> um, and, you know, as much as I'd like to see John Wall <laughs> reappear with the Lakers right now, he's... You know, a healthy John Wall is a much better fit than Russell mm. Westbrook. He's an actual point guard. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I think we're stuck in this. And I think the one thing that just bodes well for the Lakers is the fact that um, the Western Conference has a lot of problems up and down, you know. And besides for, uh, you know, Golden State's having this rough little run with Draymond being hurt, you know. And, you know, besides for Phoenix running ahead, um, I still think, you know, LA is like very much right there to stay in the top six, you know? Yeah. These Lakers right now kind of remind me of like the late two thousands to early, like 20 teens of like the Yanks where it's like, yeah, they got their like one title, but they keep trying to plug in these like veterans and they give these big contracts. And it's just like, like, I I feel like people never learn from history. It's crazy. Yeah. 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 That's true. So you're saying, Russell Westbrook is like Mark Teixeira. Johnny Damon. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he's the Johnny (laughs) Damon. That's rough. That's rough. All right. Well, speaking of New York, bringing it a little back closer to home, Benny, let's get into your nets, shall we? All right, Benny, your nets are going to be without KD for the next month or so. Um, But you know what? We've seen the return of Kyrie, and we have bashed Kyrie on this podcast for his political stance. But you want to know something? He's looked good in return. He's averaging 28 points. 0.5 points, 8 assists, shooting about 54%. Love to see that. He's calling out Cleveland fans for being ungrateful. Love all of it. But, you know, when they get home, which they will in a couple games from now, it's going to become the James Harden show. Uh, Benny, can Steve Nash and company piece this thing together until early March? I mean, here's the thing that that I'm... I think the whole NBA... um, uh, fandom world has forgotten something over the last month that we're watching the Nets. Patty Mills has been in and out of the lineup. Joe Harris has been gone. Claxton gone. Uh, you know, all these solid pieces that they thought they had have been gone. And the Nets managed to stay in first place with essentially Kevin Durant, James Harden, and four late rookies. I've been seeing a lot of Kessler Edwards, Dayron Sharp, Cam Thomas, David Duke Jr. No relation to the bad David Duke, (laughs) luckily. From Providence. Yeah, and I mean, and I think Kevin Durant is so damn good that he's made a lot of these guys look like rotational NBA players. And let me tell you, some of them aren't. Um, They're fine. 
but should Kessler Edwards be starting and getting 35 minutes a night right now? No, <laughs> no. And on any other functional team, he's not. So, uh, this James Harden basically by himself when the Nets are at home show uh, is, is I'm not looking forward to it. And I'm a little concerned about some of the games we might kick right now. Um, Kyrie, as you said, looks great, but there's no end in sight to this thing. I don't see him backing down. Uh, it eventually means, you know, there's a pretty solid chance with, you know, uh, the Knicks currently in the, you know, hanging right around the 10th seed, the Raptors hanging around the 10th seed. There's a good chance the Nets could play either one of those teams, which means Kyrie doesn't play one game in a playoff series. Again, not sustainable. So I'm a little concerned. Um, I think they desperately need some, uh, some people to come back and they need it uh, fairly fast. I do have a sexy glimmer of hope, though. Oh, yes. Kevin Durant has been playing far too many minutes. We all knew it. And I've been terrified. Like, you know how, like, every time Aaron Judge lays out for a ball in right field, I'm like, oh, fuck. No, don't yeah. do it. Don't do it. And, you know, Katie's been getting to the point when I'm in the fourth quarter and I know he's on 38 minutes, 40 minutes, 41 minutes. He's making these cuts. He takes a tough fall. I'm like, oh, God. Is this the one? <laughs> Is this the one? Because I keep waiting for the other shoe to drop. You know, I know he's playing too many minutes. And this injury he had, he got rolled into in the back of the knee. This was a, a freak injury, not a wear and tear injury. So is there a chance that uh, Kevin Durant may have avoided a wear and tear injury by having an impact injury? And you know, he's come back from sprained MCLs before and he just gave all the other broken pieces of himself like a six-week break before we get into the, the end of the season. It actually, to me, could be a little bit of a blessing in disguise on the Kevin Durant tip. Um, but the way some of these teams are playing in the East, I mean, fuck, like, the Bucks are coming on. The Sixers are coming on. Like, they'll probably make a move. And Bede put up 50 last night. Uh, Cleveland still looks good. Miami. Charlotte still looks good. Washington is coming back. Boston's playing better. So the Nets, you know, being only, uh, you know, what, three and a half games out of the seven seed right now. Um, yeah, like they, it's a, it's a, it's concern. It's concern. Well, let me alleviate some of your concern because the schedule, like if, if, if you're going to lose Kevin Durant and have to be on the road, and so that you have your best possible lineup, this is the time to do it because, I mean, like, let's just look at, at the marquee games. You have, well, you have the, I think that this is the Nuggets and Lakers. That's both at, at, at Barclays, right? But then, like, after that, um, you, you've got the Jazz on the road. You've got the Warriors on the road. You've got the Suns on the road. Then you go to the Nuggets. Um, so then, you, then you've got the Heat on the road so that's all leading up and you've got M milwaukee on the road so that by the time kd comes back and let's let, let's just be uh you know like cautiously optimistic about this and say it's like like march 8th or like march 15th or so right 
You've mm-hmm. all already had the opportunity to win some of these major games and to maybe grab even or, or take a season series. I think if, if, if this were to happen at any time of the season, during a road-heavy part where you can have Harden and Kyrie together, I, I, I think the Nets got lucky here. Yeah, yeah, that's that, that might be true. And, I mean, the one thing we have to consider, too, and I know it's not sexy, but it's real, <laughs> is, like, we are getting Kyrie back in flashes here, but, like, how long is it going to be till something else happens? You know what I mean? Like someone says something, someone does something off color and all of a sudden Kyrie is taking games. He can play again off and stuff. I mean, the the one thing that has been nice to watch, and I think it's part of this Katie Kyrie connection is that they're like, they both see basketball in a certain way. And it, and it does look, like when they're playing and they're playing well, there does seem to be true joy, like real joy, like in those two playing. So, you know, we never know exactly what's going behind the scenes. Uh, but what you're hearing these rumors, though, how are you feeling about these rumors of James Harden and Ben Simmons going to get swapped in the offseason? I mean, well, there's a whole other Ben Simmons topic that we could have gone in, into today about how how Simmons thinks that Joel Embiid is Dal Morey and Dal Morey is like uh, Joel Embiid. So like anything that comes from Joel's mouth is straight from the front office. Oh. And Ben is willing to sit out the rest of the season. He's like, I've, I've, I've come this far. So I don't know, man. I, like, I think that that's the low-hanging fruit. Um, this Ben Simmons situation is going to have to be resolved. Um, but I'm just not sure that uh, the Nets would – ever make that deal i think they might yeah I think they should you know i i watch Harden, you know night in and night out and i don't know if you remember do you remember the movie little big league oh, of course come on so you know how he had his like favorite player <laughs> when he was a kid and and he got like a seeing eye single through the infield and he's like yes yes <laughs> he got one he's still good like like these days, that's where my confidence level's at with Harden. Like when he's taking those old step backs, the real deep threes that, you know, I used to watch three, four years ago and be like, oh, it's Harden. That's fucking, that's a good shot. You know, like he makes those all the time. I'm not feeling that way anymore. And, you know, I think there has been some degradation to his body, some to his game. He's just getting a little bit older. Um, and even though Ben Simmons is like just an enormous risk for so many different reasons from a pure fit perspective and an age perspective, if you can basically swap those two even and get a real commitment from Simmons somehow that he's going to play and play ball. I mean, it's such a better team for the nets. It's exactly what the nets need in a lot of ways. And uh, yeah, I think at this point with the fact that Harden's not resigned, he's not there a long time. I, I kind of I'm getting warmer and warmer to the idea, even though I hate Ben Simmons at this point. But <laughs> but as a as I've learned through the years, I can grow to love anybody who's playing really well. You 
Oh, Benny, I feel like I feel like here's what happened with you in this entire situation, right? Like James yeah, Harden yeah. is like it's like Stockholm syndrome is like all fucked up now. <laughs> <laughs> James Harden is like the prom queen from high school, and like all the college are like keeping tabs and be like, oh, like what's she up to? And now she's back in like the hometown, and you're like, maybe I got a chance, and you get your chance, and you're yeah, like, right. this isn't at all what I wanted it to yeah, be. Yeah, yeah. Like I, I saw her at Fridays, and it was just <laughs> love it. <laughs> She saw her at Fridays having like a 32 ounce Long Island iced tea. And I'm like, wait, man, she's not nearly as charming as she was in high school. So let's get to the Bulls a little bit. They've had a rough go of it of late, but they were one of the hottest teams that we've been talking about. Uh, currently, they're losers of four of their last five. Um, they've had their defensive woes, and that's only going to get worse as they lost, as they're losing Lonzo Ball for four to six weeks now. Um, same question kind of in regard to the Nets. Can Billy Donovan and company get this, I guess, back on track and piece this together for a couple weeks? Yeah, I think so. Um, I mean, they are going to have to figure out what to do with Lonzo's spot for real. Cause you know, the surge he's, he's opting for surgery. He's going to be out at least six to eight weeks. Um, and he, I, I don't think it takes Chicago out of the conversation of being very good. I don't think it takes him out of the conversation of them being a legit playoff team, but it's starting to get me even further from the conversation about them being a championship contender. I didn't think so in the beginning of the year, even when they were hot. Uh, there was just too many holes, particularly on defense. Once Patrick Williams went down that like, I love this team on offense. There's still Swiss cheese on defense. And you just lost Lonzo ball. Who was like, you know, your, your linchpin on the perimeter. Um, Caruso's back. Kobe white's a nice uh, offensive replacement for Lonzo. Um, the, you know, that kid from Illinois, DeSomnu, was a real, you know, nice surprise and a late, a late pick. So I think Chicago's uh, uh, good enough to tread water here and good enough to stay in the top six in the East. But um, I do think that this is uh, taking them down potentially a peg below the Brooklyn, Milwaukee, Miami tier of, uh, of the East. See, I, I feel like every year when we get to this January time in the NBA, I feel like we get a lot of fool's gold and a lot of killing people because this is kind of the time when you start to figure out, uh, you know, what your um, what your playoff rotations and all that stuff are, are going to look like. I mean, let's if, if, if you use Milwaukee last year as an example, through February and March, we were killing them. Um, I mean, granted, there was like there was also the COVID thing, but you're trying to figure out while you have the sample size of these guys that don't get as much minutes. Okay, what's my depth look like? What am I going to need once a playoff comes around? And I feel like there's a lot of teams in that situation right now. Um, so if the Bulls' defense can improve incrementally, uh, while while these other guys are getting an opportunity here, and they they uh get back all the pieces from before it could be interesting every team is learning about themselves right now and as we go forward to the playoffs we're going to see if some of these uh tests actually work or are just fake yeah but i don't think the bulls needed to learn what like starting and giving 30 minutes to alfonso mckinney looked like you know like like that was never in the cards it's unnecessary <laughs> they don't need to know that 
Um, so I do think they're already in a position where like every time I look at the box score, I'm sorry, I'm seeing a little too much uh, Trey Brown Jr. and Tony Bradley and DeSomnu and Alfonso McKinney. I'm seeing a little too much of that. Like when you're getting 20 minutes of Matt Thomas a night, you know your roster is thin. Like, <laughs> I don't know about this, though, because like if, if you look at another team in the East like Miami, right? And yeah. some of their their guys that were two way players last year, you like like your Gabe Vincents of the world are now like rotation guys that can get it. I think every team goes through their process. Like a team like Miami right now has been like super fascinating because you've got like all all, all of these young guys are piecing it together. They're kind of getting a guy like Duncan Robinson back in the flow of things. So every team kind of goes through this. And I'm not saying this is what happened with the Bulls. I'm just saying that they have the opportunity to do that. I think Miami is a little bit of an unfair uh, precedent to set, though, because to me, Miami and San Antonio both have the New England Patriots way of doing things. You know what I mean? It's next person up. It's like it's not about you. It's about this is what I need in the three spot. And that's why Jimmy Butler gets kicked out of last night's game. And Caleb Martin is sitting there, goes right into Jimmy Butler's role and puts up 28 points. Like that doesn't happen with every team. And it only happens with teams that have longstanding coaches and systems in place. So like I do semi agree with what you're saying conceptually, but I don't really believe that that's actually what's happening in Chicago currently. Yeah. But anyways, get in contact with the show. You can email us at the tune-up podcast at gmail.com, two P's in there. Uh, if, if you want to follow us on all the social platforms, it is at the tune-up HQ on Twitter, TikTok, and Instagram. If you want to follow the big man, he's at Benny Horowitz1, number one in your mind, number one in your heart, number one on Twitter. I'm at Denny underscore Gallagher. Benny, you got anything else? I might not hear you this week. I, I, I muted like 46 people on Twitter this morning. That's fine. I'm my used to it. My new policy. You want to hear it? This yeah. is my new policy. Yeah. If you don't have my phone number... You're not allowed to bother me anymore. Oh, I hope I still have Only your phone nice number. Things. Oh, yeah, my you gosh. Got you got me? I hope so. All right, we're good. We're good. All right. The show is ending. Go in peace. You've been listening to The Tune-Up. <laughs> <laughs>